years ago, there was a viral video um, of a woman. Her name is Christine Weck. And I, I don't know if you ever saw this, but she was kind of lambasting monster energy drink. And she said that this drink was of the devil. And she had a litany of reasons. That M logo kind of looks like three independent columns. And she says these represent the Hebrew letter Vav, which letter also represents the number six. So she's saying their marketing is at 666. There were plenty of expletives on the can. Uh, The O in Monster has what appears to be a cross uh, and, and she said that when you would drink it, it turns that cross upside down. And she says, I quote, and the devil laughs. The drink slogan is unleash the beast. So all of these factors put together convinced her that this was a satanic company bent to impression young minds towards the devil. And <laughs> there were a lot of views of her videos. Now, personally, I'm not endorsing Monster. I, I don't I personally find their advertising a bit distasteful, but the question is, was there an intent by this company to truly be anti-Christian in their marketing? It's always possible, but, you know, the the artist who designed the logo said that what it was supposed to look like is, you know, monster claws ripping through, you know, trying to get out of the can. I mean, even if if they were meant to be vavs, this Hebrew letter, and, you know, represents three independent sixes. I mean, that's not how you would represent the mark of the beast in Hebrew, right? Because it's not just six independent sixes. It would be 666, which is reflected differently. But the problem whenever individuals like this make these strong, bold statements is that there are so many Christians that jump right on board. And, And I've got to be honest with you, there are a lot of people who sit in pews on Sunday mornings that are very, very gullible that buy into some of these things. Lots of examples of this. When I was working with college students, one student asked me to read a book and give my opinion of a book called The Harbinger by Jonathan Kahn, New York Times bestseller. Two million copies of this book have been sold. The subtitle is The Ancient Mystery That Holds the Secret of America's Future. And he goes on to cite passages of Isaiah and other prophets that he says predicted events like September 11th. Two million people have gobbled this up. In high school, a friend, of me, a friend of mine gave me a copy of something called the Bible Code. I don't know if you've heard of this. This was back in the 90s. It was a book that they you know, took the, these, these letters, the Hebrew letters of the Scripture, and assembled them, almost like a word search. And then they ran these you know, word search diagrams and things that intersected. And one of them, for instance, that they used was that it predicted the assassination of Yasser Arafat as if that's what the Bible was written to be, this code to unlock all the, you know, like Nostradamus trying to unlock the code of everything that is to come in the world. We so desire to know the truth that we allow ourselves to get swept away by just about any conspiracy that exists. I mean, one more example for you all. A month ago, many of us, our nation watched when DeMar Hamlin collapsed on that football field in the Bills-Bengals game. And so, you know, everybody's kind of worried, like, what's going on? And so where do you go to try to get up-to-date news? You go to Twitter. I went to Twitter. Should stay off it. And I see people using his injury to propagate their anti-vaccine agenda. I mean, that somehow DeMar's injury was caused by the NFL mandate that players take the vaccine. 
people are just, again, gobbling this stuff up. There's a reason that many in the broader culture associate Christianity with anti-intellectualism. But this should, this should not be the case. Too often this anti-intellectualism has been enabled because we want to accept the word of God and the things that seem to come out of it with blind faith. It doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. If the Bible said it, then it's got to be true. But friends, this is not faith. God gave us minds to use, to think critically about life and faith. The problem is not asking questions of faith. It's not asking questions of our holy text. The problem is when we don't ask anything. Romans 12, 2, Paul says this. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. We seek transformation through the renewing of our mind, that through testing, through discernment, we might know what the truth of God is and navigate to what is good, acceptable, and perfect. What Paul is saying here is don't check your brains at the door, but use them to discern the full truth in the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. So this morning, we're continuing this series that we're moving through. This will be the last of our inward disciplines, looking at these spiritual disciplines. And it's the discipline of study. Study can be understood as the pursuit of truth. Jesus told us that by following his word, we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. Truth is vital to our spiritual health. Richard Foster, whose book Celebration of Discipline has been guiding our subject matter for this series, he put it this way, quote, good feelings will not free us. Ecstatic experiences will not free us. Getting high on Jesus will not free us. Without a knowledge of the truth, we will not be free. That's what he says. As followers of Jesus Christ who have the truth, we ought to be deeply thoughtful of our understanding of reality. So let's jump into this discipline of study together. So how would we define study? Richard Foster puts it this way. I don't love his definition personally. It's super vague. A specific kind of experience in which through careful attention to reality, the mind is enabled to move in a certain direction. Pretty general, pretty vague statement. Um, let, let, me, let me restate it. I, I like this, it gives a little bit more direction. It's kind of like velocity, if you know physics. You know, velocity is speed with direction. So give us some direction here. Study being our careful attention to the world around us so that we can move into greater alignment with the vision that God has of the world. Vision of what the world is like, the vision of what we are like, bringing transformation to us. Right, study allows us, it's a discipline, a spiritual discipline that allows us to take whatever sources we are examining and we'll get to later some examples of those sources, to think about them in such ways that brings greater clarity and understanding to what God's truth is in those circumstances. Right, studies about these ingrained habits of thought that we carry within us, because all of us have what they call a worldview, a framework. Maybe think about them like a pair of glasses. Right, it's a way in which you see the world through these, in, in, um, 
You know, our generation, they talk about things like bias, and bias might be a part of our worldview, but a worldview is the way in which you see the world. And so what study enables us to do is to take those parts of our, our worldview that are blind spots, or that maybe you have some blurry vision, to bring clarity, to bring focus, to see more of what God sees. But our frameworks are guided by these ingrained habits of thought. Everything we consume shapes us in some way. Right? Whether we recognize it or not, everything, whether it be the news stories that we read, the music that we're listening to, the advertising that we watch on TV, it, it all forms us, it all shapes us in some way. What we study, whether this is intentional or unconsciously or subconsciously, I guess not unconsciously, subconsciously, it shapes us into the people that we become with a particular viewpoint of life. And I think that's why Paul talks about renewing this mind, that he encourages us that it's important to be aware of what we're consuming. Philippians 4.8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything with any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul says you're formed by something, right? Are those habits of consumption at least good ones? Three weeks ago, we looked at the place of meditation in the spiritual disciplines, right? Study and meditation might deal with similar material, but they're different. They come at it from two different perspectives, Meditation is more focused on the devotional side of our development. For example, how do I experience God's love in the scriptures? How do I experience God's love meditating on that on my daily life so that I feel loved? Study is much more analytical. How do I know that God loves me based on what I read in the scriptures? It's understanding the, the, the meat behind it. Now, from here, I want to give, I have kind of two pathways that I want to go. I want to give us some concrete examples of how to study, rhythms to put in place to aid in this discipline, and then I want to look a little bit about what do we study? How do we study different areas? What's the content? So, Foster lists four steps of study, and you're going to hear this kind of these same themes and different words come up a couple of times this morning. The four steps are repetition, Concentration, comprehension, and reflection. Right? Repetition, concentration, comprehension, reflection. Repetition is just what it sounds like. It's the act of doing something over and over again. Even if we don't understand it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shape us. The other day, I had lunch with a friend who I hadn't seen in uh, quite some time, and he was sharing about how his son uh, is, is 16 and is learning to drive. So he's got his driver's permit. And he's saying, like, while he was watching his son drive, he learned how many different tasks the average driver takes for granted that we just do naturally. Right? Through repetition, if you've been driving for a long time, you've learned you know, how to move your eyes, how to take in the mirrors to, to get a full sense of traffic and signage around you. We know the natural place to put our hands on the wheel, how to turn that wheel, which buttons or levers our turn signals versus our windshield wipers. Right? Each of these things we do without thinking because we have a vast experience. Whereas someone who's learning for the first time has to use extra brain power, has to kind of think about 
focusing on each of those individual tasks. He was tra- talking about, you know, the ten and two is where you're supposed to put her, your, his hands. He's like, well, that's what it says. And so he's turning and he's like doing it so that he keeps his hands up here. And, you know, my friend was like, just like you can move your hands, you know. And that we, we take those things for granted because we've experienced through that course of repetition. It's why the Mosaic law had the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for listen or hear. And it became a mantra for the Hebrew way of life. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They repeat this time and time again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. All these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hands and place them as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I mean, notice the repetition. This wasn't just a a set of statements to believe, but it provided a rhythm to do it. It permeated every avenue of life. Think about the place of repetition in your study, whether you know it or not. The repetition of Bible reading is going to guide us. It's going to shape us, but so does the repetition of entertainment at the hands of Netflix. So repetition is that first way that we study something. Let's move to the next one, concentration. Concentration is not just repeating, but focusing. It's paying attention to something, right? When you focus on a task, learning is vastly increased. But this is difficult in our age, right? Because we live in an age of distraction. You might read or do schoolwork with music on in the background. We complete a project in the house with the television on. Try to concentrate on the things of God. When we try to concentrate on the things of God, are we giving him our full undivided attention? Most of you know I I enjoy playing video games. When I play, it's very easy to get hyper-focused in the game that I'm playing, whatever task is at hand. And there have been countless times that Sarah's come by and she's asked me to do something. And I hear her, and, and, and I, at least I hear that she's speaking to me. I hear that there's a question being asked. And, you know, I, I take in that she's asking that, and so I'll usually give some kind of response. Yep, sure, I'll take care of it when I'm done. But I don't have any focus there. There's no change or movement, and I can't tell you the number of times that I take a break from my game and I go back to Sarah and be like, what did you ask me to do again? Like, I don't, I don't remember, because I wasn't really listening, because there was no concentration in that moment, right? Concentration helps us center our minds to increase that effectiveness as we're pursuing truth, right? The next step is comprehension. This isn't just giving focus on a task, but seeking to understand what's before us. Jesus famously said in John 8, 32 that the truth will set us free, but that's, that's not really, that's what we quote, but that's not the actual quote. He says that the knowledge of the truth will set us free, right? The truth by itself is useless to bring transformation unless we can understand it, unless we can comprehend it. You know, as I was preparing, the image that came to mind is that of a connect the dots. Remember doing that? The back of a, of a uh, you know, kid's placemat in the when you're eating out, yeah, you, you give focus to the puzzle. Right? You have to pay attention. You find each number in succession, drawing these lines between them. That's focus. That's concentration. But when you get to the end, a picture jumps out at you. 
right? These seemingly random lines that you have followed, this course that you have followed, comes together to represent something bigger than what you first understood. That, that is comprehension, understanding that bigger picture of what you study. And lastly, we study by reflection. And this is a step beyond comprehension. It's not just seeking understanding, but moves to focus on the significance of what is studied. Foster puts it this way, reflection brings us to see things from God's perspective. It's not just understanding the material, but understanding ourselves, understanding our world in light of it. So as we go through these things, as we study, I would say one of the most important characteristics we need is humility. We have to approach as a student, not a teacher, because we're seeking to learn. We have as a culture often conflated advanced degrees as the same thing as knowledge or wisdom. That's not a mistake. The accumulation of information is not knowledge. It's data, right? You might know a lot of data, but we're not just seeking as people of God to be smarter by the world's standards, but wiser in the economy of God's kingdom. So those are some steps, right? Repetition, concentration, comprehension, reflection. It's how we study. But what is it that we study? And, and the answer to what we study is everything. But Foster says there are two predominant spheres of study. What he calls verbal, it's going to be materials like books, and the nonverbal, which might be things like nature or things, actions, events. So first, let's look at verbal. Now, the easiest example of verbal study are books, but there are many avenues of verbal communication beyond just words on a page. Now, you might have been reading books for decades, but that doesn't mean that you know how to study. Again, let's not just assume that reading is the same thing as studying. It's a skill that's learned. Probably the most influential book on this topic is a book. It's called How to Read a Book, very basic title, by Mortimer Adler. And he suggests that any time we read, there are three different things that we're reading for in succession. And he says, as we learn to do this, as you learn to do this, you might need to read that book three separate times, one for each theme, until you learn how to do it all at once. First, he says, we read for understanding. What is it that the author is saying? Thinking about making connections understanding that broad sweep of the story or argument. Second, we read for interpretation. What does the author mean? Right? We all know how fickle communication can be. We see this all the time on social media. Right? Something, someone writes something, and then we interpret it in a particular light, positively or negatively. In the absence of nonverbal communication, it's easy to miss the actual case that the authors put forth. I forget it, what the statistic is. It's something like 70% of communication is nonverbal. And, you know, is it right? Seven, Nick, Nick says I'm right. So if you're just reading words on a page, you don't have the facial expressions, the, 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 the cadence, the inflection, any of those things. And so it's easy to, to miss that. So that's, that's this idea of um, interpretation understanding what they mean. And then lastly, we read for evaluation. Once we've done those first two, is the author right in what he or she suggests? And this is really important because before we get to number three, reading for evaluation, we absolutely need to get number one and two, understanding and interpretation. 
because you cannot say if something is right or wrong before we have understood the position that is being put forth. As a culture, we're so prone to jump to conclusions, especially if it fits our preconceived notions. There, there's, there's an expression that it's easy to build, you know, don't build a straw man or a straw woman. Right? It, it, it's a, uh, a term that means like creating a stereotype, creating a shell of your arguments, uh, your opponent's argument, someone that's easy to knock down. You see this again. You go, go on Facebook. You see straw people being built left and right. Case in point, I'm reading a book right now by Owen Strachan called Christianity and Wokeness, how the social justice movement is hijacking the gospel and the way to stop it. And I've gotten, I've gotten almost halfway through the book, and it is a really frustrating read. He is highly critical of anything that even resembles critical race theory. I mean, immediately he's dismissing it as evil, anti-gospel, ungodly, Marxist. And again, I'm not here to say that everything in CRT is great, right? But as I've been reading his arguments, he's he has been providing the least charitable interpretation of his opponents. I've read, uh, he cites a number of books that I have read, and the books that he cites, the communication that he puts forth on their behalf He's, he's jumping to evaluation. He, er, excuse me, let me say that again. The, the arguments that he puts forth in quoting these authors is not what they've actually said. Like I said, I've read the, the books that he's cited. Right? Strachan has been jumping to evaluation without fully understanding the nature of the material that he's writing so vociferously against. It is essential that if we, when we study, that we understand and interpret well before we get to that piece of evaluation. That's just like a good discipline to have for life. Now, the, the, the discipline of study can cover a multitude of resources, but the most important book for us to study is the Bible. This, the Bible is God's special revelation to us, and so we ought to be diligent. We ought to be careful with our consideration of it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, that all Scripture is God-breathed. At its come, it's proceeded from the mouth, this, the breath of God. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be complete, that we would be equipped for every good work. Right? The Scriptures are God's lifeline of communication about Him, about us, about the world. And so when we read the Bible, just like all of these disciplines, the goal is transformation. How are we changed as a result of our reading, right? We don't read the Bible just to collect information, just to collect data, right, so that you can win, you know, your Bible trivia contests. I mean, gosh, I can think of so many times where what was affirmed was how well we knew the answer to random, vague questions in the Scriptures, as if knowing facts about the Bible is what makes us disciples of Jesus Christ. Granted, we ought to study, we ought to know those things, but just like James says, right, the demons know objectively more right answers of, about God than any of us in this room, but that hasn't gotten them on the right side of his plan. And so we ought to study the Bible for content, for development, for transformation in our sides. And so if this is something that's new to you, to think like, how do I read the Bible in a, through this lens of study? I want to give you some con concrete steps. And you're going to see these same themes of repetition, 
concentration, comprehension, and reflection, or understanding, interpretation, evaluation, right? Those same types of things come out here. Any time you read the Bible, there's this acronym that I like. It's called SOIA, S-O-I-A. Survey, observation, interpretation, application. It's the order we go through, right? And you go through in that order. You don't want to go backwards. Uh, I don't even know how you would say that, A-I-O-S. Um, just like the thesis from Adler, we can't get to good application unless we go through those other steps to more fully understand what the Bible is teaching us. Otherwise, you're, you're going you're to get an application, but it's not what the Bible is telling you is a true application. Survey, so let's, I'll go through them real quickly, briefly. Um, survey is getting background information. It's like reading, you know, if you have a study Bible, if you go to the front of any of the books, there is uh, usually a, a cover sheet that tells you, you know, if you're reading 1 Corinthians, it tells you, oh, this is who 1 Corinthians is written by. This is where Corinth was. This is w about when it was written. This is some of the themes that was going on in the Corinthian church when Paul wrote it. So that survey it gives you that background information just to lay that groundwork for you. Next is observation. So when you actually read the text, you read for content, right? Asking the who, what, where, when, why, how type questions. Noting details. Note if there's repetition of words that are used, you know, in the passage multiple times. See if there's definitions that the, the author gives or if there are contrasts from one another, right? This is where we learn what a particular passage says. Then we move to interpretation. So observation is what does the text say? Interpretation is what does the text mean? Pulling back the curtains, tracing the logical arguments, understanding the historical context of the words that are used. This is where you might want to use a commentary or a, a Bible dictionary like the Strong's Concordance, right? Taking expertise from others who have studied a little bit more to learn from, right? Because we're separated 2,000 years from the New Testament, separated even more so, you know, up to like three to 4,000 years from the Old Testament. So how do we break through that gap in history to understand what was written, what the biblical author meant? Well, lastly, then, we get to application, right? What does this mean for me? As I've said before, we've got to do our previous work in order to get an accurate application. Right, let me just give you an example of this. This is a little bit of an aside. So, um, I, and I'll, if you follow the Bible reading plan, um, I'm going to write about this tomorrow when I send out the, the weekly email. But I think it's Jeremiah 29 uh, was one of the ones that we read this past week. Right? A lot of people love that as their life verse. Right? Jeremiah 29, 17, I don't remember the exact passage. Right? For I know the plans that I have for you. Right? Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Is it ringing a bell? Some of you guys have heard that passage before. It's a life verse. Right? And, and so a lot of people will read that and say, this is what the Bible says. And then they jump right to application. God loves me. He's got a plan for me. He's going he's gonna to prosper me. He's not going to harm me. Those might be true statements that the Bible articulates. But if we understand the context of that passage in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is writing a letter of encouragement to exiles. These are people who have been conquered by the Babylonians living in a foreign nation under their thumb. And Jeremiah is saying, what he says immediately beforehand is, hey, you know what? go, if, so if you read the context before and after that passage, he says, go, build yourself houses, right? Marry people, give your sons and daughters away in marriage, because you're going to be there a while. You're going to be in this land for 70 years. And then he says this passage about 
I've got plans for you. So what's important to note is just knowing that God loves us and has a plan for us does not mean that that plan does not involve suffering, does not involve exile, does not involve very difficult circumstances in our lives. So that's just a a, a real quick example of how too often we read the superficial look of, you know, reading of the text without understanding the background information and get kind of an errant conclusion. Because if I think that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life and then all of a sudden cancer hits, what do I do with that? My faith is shaking. This isn't, this isn't what the Bible teaches me, things are, you know, how things are supposed to be. So it's essential that we have this rooted, deep understanding of the Scriptures. But the truth is, this, is, this work is not easy. This is a, a discipline that will continue for our entire lives. It takes effort and struggle, but let me give you a word of encouragement. This is somewhat tongue-in-cheek. 2 Peter 3, 15-16, Peter says this. Our beloved brother Paul, he's writing for, for about his fellow apostle, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Peter then says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. So if the apostle Peter has some trouble understanding what Paul was saying, it's okay for you to to have trouble understanding what Paul was saying as well, for you to feel that way too. Now, that's, (laughs) that was verbal, we didn't really scratch the surface of nonverbal. I'm going to try to go through this somewhat quickly. Um, Foster describes nonverbal as things like studying nature. He tells the story of a rabbi who went out every morning at dawn to, quote, learn the song with which the frogs praise God. It's about paying attention to what is around you, right? Doing so with wonder. It's not just about gathering scientific information. Foster says that we can look at the relationships. It's another example of nonverbal. Look at the relationships that exist around you. See how much time and energy is devoted to, just, to justifying, to defending oneself. Maybe turn that focus and not just look at someone else, but look at yourself. How much time and energy are you using because you feel like you need to be right all the time? The goal is not to be a source of condemnation, for others or ourselves, but to learn and understand, right? What is it? Study yourself. What is it that controls you? What is it that motivates you? We could study our society. Listen, this is how I like the way Foster described it, so I'm just going to quote him. He says, what has the fast food industry done to the tradition of a family gathering for dinner? Again, he's writing this in 1978. I think even so, some 40-odd years later. He says, why do we find it difficult in our culture to have time to develop relationships? Is Western individualism beneficial or destructive? These are the kind of questions that we can study. What is it in our culture that is in harmony with the gospel, and what is it that are at odds with it? You could look at the role of capitalism in our day and age, right? The widening wealth gaps. There are all kinds of things that we could study and examine The goal is to understand why things are the way they are. And with the wisdom of God, learn to navigate this minefield that we call life. Now, I'm sure so much more could be said on these, right? Because the discipline of study is not meant to be an academic venture, but is used for our own transformation. Again, I I, I keep saying this because this is something 
I know I wrestled with for a long time, because I'm a cerebral person. You guys all know that about me. I think a lot. But it's so easy to mistake the um, amassing information with wisdom. But instead, how is that information transforming us into the people that God wants us to be? Right? Is the subject matter drawing us into closer intimacy with Christ? Is it fostering the, the, the fruits of the Holy Spirit in us? My encouragement, my hope for us is that we would be a people that are not caught up with every conspiracy theory that raises its head before us. As Jesus said, we ought to be shrewd, wise as serpents, and yet gentle as doves. So may we be a people that have renewed our minds, that have learned to think well and critically, navigating this path of life that God has set before us with integrity and with effectiveness. So some things to think about this week. Some questions. So, thinking about the spiritual, a lot of times the spiritual disciplines might parallel something that we're used to. Like last week, I talked about fasting. And so, you know, fasting is abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. And we might think about fasting in the realm of like dieting. Again, they're, they're for different reasons. So, in a similar way, right, like we have a context to understand study. So, how would you compare and contrast the spiritual discipline of study? with the studying that you would do for a school exam. Think about that. What, what's similar and different about them? There's a book, um, Derek Melby and is, is the author. I can't think of the, I'm blanking on the name right now. But he talks about that as Christians in school, you should double study, right? You study your material twice, same material. Once so that you can pass and get an A on your test. But the second reason you go through it is to go through it with this lens, this framework of understanding what does God have to say about this? Anyway. That's something to think about there. Second, which of these four studies is difficult for you? Repetition, concentration, comprehension, reflection. And then the last is this. The Bible is the, mo- the most important book to study. I said that in the sermon. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? And then is, after you've answered that question, whether you agree or disagree, is the time that you put in reflective of how you answered that question. Let's join together in prayer, and then we'll close with the song. God, you've given us minds to use. May we use our minds and our hearts together, not erring too far on one side or the other. I'm sure most of us in this room would err on one side or the other. I know for me, it's erring on my mind more than my heart. Help us to find that balance between them that we might know your truth but seek that truth to bring healing, to bring transformation, to bring change in our lives for the benefit and the hope of the world. God, help us to navigate just this thing called life and as we navigate our schools, as we we navigate our politics, as we navigate our neighborhoods, our relationships, the books that we read, the, the... substances that we consume, the, you know, entertainment and, and all of that, Lord, that it would shape, as it shapes us, that we would have an objective view to understand that reality. Guide us in this through the power of your Holy Spirit, because we can't do it by ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.